you know, I've been, I've been wanting, I've been really, really anxious to record this first episode under the new name, this new refocusing of everything into one place. I've been really anxious to do it. But now that I have the microphone on, I'm a little bit terrified, a little bit terrified because one of the, one of the really difficult things for me to do in everything that I've ever done in the audio field in podcasting is it becomes really difficult for me to go into an episode by myself with no other person to talk to without a ton of notes. If you've listened to enough of my episodes, regardless of which podcast you're coming from, you know I don't just sit and read notes. Then I have a more conversational aspect. But I always have like a, at least an arc of where I want to go. You know, this is the this is the story of this case, if it's further questions, or this is what I thought about this book, if it was something for semi-literate. This is the idea that I'm struggling with, the challenge that I'm facing, if it was brainstorms. Even the stuff that like uh, Lamb and I would do, and I was all I would always come in with things prepped. Although, of course, when Lamb is on the podcast, I don't have to worry as much because I have someone else there. And just the chemistry of talking to someone, especially someone that I enjoy talking to, I don't worry about it. The momentum moves and it flows. I've got to take off this. I've got this bracelet on that's making a ton of noise. Sorry about that. Okay. So I'm sitting down to get ready to do this podcast. And I've been, like I said, so psyched to do this, to get into this more conversational and more overlapping way of doing things where the ideas of one show mix with the others because it's really my brain really functions more like that right we're not all compartmentalized you know i don't when i think of true crime all i think of is true crime nobody does that everything else in your life bleeds in that's what makes humans kind of incredible machines isn't it that we have all of these things mixing together. It's this, uh, there's a book called uh, Imagine. And it's by, oh my God, what's the guy's name? It's Jonah, Jonah Lehrer. I never, I'm never sure how to pronounce it. It's L-E-H-R-E-R. And it's this book about creativity. I think it came out in like uh, 2015, something like that. Actually, maybe even earlier than that, maybe a few years earlier than that. But there was a big scandal about this book because Lara got caught um, plagiarizing. Actually, I, I don't even know if the term plagiarize applies correctly to what he did. And my understanding of plagiarism is when you, you steal something from someone. But what he did apparently was make things up. He had some quotes, if I remember correctly, there were some quotes from Bob Dylan that Bob Dylan didn't necessarily ever say, or he took two things and squished them together to make them say what he wanted it to say. And it was something he had been accused of in the past in his writing for uh, newspapers or magazines, whatever he did before. 
I'm honestly over time. I, I honestly, I feel really bad for the guy. He got publicly shamed for this and he really hasn't had a career since like no one has forgiven him. He tried to do something a couple years ago and people just savaged him. And I don't like that kind of cruelty. I just think that's, I mean, it's not like, yeah, sure. You um, made some stuff up in your book. It's not like the dude murdered somebody. But we're far more forgiving of people who do stuff like that. Very strange. But I bring the book up because even though it was discredited, when I read it, I didn't know that because it hadn't happened yet. It was a great book. It was a really good book. And even if he made some of the stuff up, the overall arc of how creativity works in the book, the way he explains it, it's really well done. It's kind of like a almost like a Malcolm Gladwell deconstruction of the idea. And it's it's just, I don't think you can find a copy of it anymore. But one of the things that he mentions in there that I had never heard of is the way that the company 3M functions. 3M, as in the people who make Post-it notes. They also make a whole bunch of other things, like light bulbs and flat screen televisions, sandpaper, all a tape. They have... They actually have, 3M has no one core product. You know, like Coca-Cola, what's Coca-Cola make? They make Coke. McDonald's, what do they make? Hamburgers. They make other stuff. But hamburgers is their main thing, right? 3M doesn't have one of those. And it's purposeful. It's a purposeful choice because of the way that they see that the human mind works. That putting somebody in this department and this department together to work together on something or to have them, they have like these fairs, if I remember, I might be confusing some of this with Google because Google stole, or not stole, but Google took a lot of the ideas of the way that 3M functioned and instituted into the way that Google functions. So they will, both of these companies will take people and move them from department to department so that they're never just stuck on one thing, so that they're always moving on to new things because what they bring might create an innovation and has. Like for 3M to discover how to do flat screen panels, flat screen television panels, was because the electronics department was talking to the tape department. And they said, well, what if we took essentially a piece of tape and put all the electronics on the back of that? What would that be? And so... I'm talking about all this stuff because that's the way that I, I'm looking at the way that this whole new show or new direction, new name is the way I see it going to be able to let those things mix together. I feel like I'm, I'm going to get somewhere that I've been trying to get for a very long time, but I've been compartmentalized and it hasn't happened. But because of that, I sat down and I said, okay, I need to, you know, I got to feed that need to have notes that need to be prepped, that need to be, that need to have an arc, that need to just not be hanging out there loose with no other person to save me. And I started, I said, you know, like I'll go through the notes that I've been taking for the past couple of weeks and just see if there's anything interesting that I want to touch on. I started moving a couple of things over and then I just started going out and stop myself. I stopped myself because that tendency can go overboard. It's good to come in, you know, I don't want to just come in and turn on this and just let's see what happens. 
because that philosophy can end up with um, nothing happening or something really boring happening, something that I would end up deleting and not releasing. But I have this tendency to go overboard with that, to start filling notes on top of notes, on top of notes, on top of notes. And then I've got this page and pages and pages of stuff. And then it's like, when you have that much stuff, oh, you're going to read all of that? Well, I don't like to read it all. You know, like, well, I just want prompts. Like, oh, remember that thing? In case, you know, if, in case you get to a point where the train of thought has stopped, here is a, here's a reminder of what the tracks look like, how to get back on the road. Just those little prompts. So that's a little bit why I feel a little nervous because I'm breaking a new ground here. Now, I don't think I said this in the last episode, kind of explaining what this was going to be, but this is in the new description of the show. I look at this show as a mixture of one of my favorite things, which is a notebook. You know, this is a notebook in the sense that it's disparate pieces. You know, it's in that arc that I was talking about, I'm not going for that arc. I'm going for this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting. Let me see what happens. You know, maybe I end up talking about this the whole time, or maybe I have to go to five different things because then there's not that much there. You know, like I know when I when I do the next, I think it's gonna be the next episode, which will be on the Death in Oslo episode of the new Unsolved Mysteries. That's gonna be the whole episode. I don't imagine talking about that and then jumping to another topic. <laughs> so I have a feeling when I do true crime stuff that they'll probably be fairly self-contained. Unless I have, you know, like some small note about something true crime. But for the most part, I can see certain things being just one episode and having that arc. But not because I forced it, but because it just makes sense for it to be done that way. The other thing that I look at when I look at this show there's the notebook, this mingling of ideas, and then this, what we're doing right now, me just talking it out, me just turning on the microphone and moving forward. Because to me, it reminds me of something that the more I think about it, I'm not positive <laughs> actually existed the way that I think it did. I'll get back to that in a second. but. Let me ask you this first. Do you ever have the experience of looking back on something from when you were younger and you have this concept of what it was, but then when you go look at it, it was different. It was very different. I think almost everybody can say yes to that, but let me add something onto that. Have you ever built something in your life based on the concept of that thing that maybe didn't exist the way that you think it existed. Because to me, I remember, I seem to remember, especially like in the 80s, there being this phenomena of the late night radio. And yes, there's late night radio. There's still late night radio to this day. You have Coast to Coast AM, which is probably one of the most famous all night radio programs where they get on and they talk about the paranormal for like four or five hours every night. But when I go and I listen to that show, I was kind of expecting it to be you know, like I wasn't I wasn't one of the people that knew about Coast to Coast. It just never 
it never made its way into my realm. I'd never heard of it until a couple years ago. But when I heard it, I was like, oh, that that's the thing that I've been remembering, right? That's late night radio. What I was thinking it was going to be is this. Someone, except not in their room, not in front of a computer, but someone in a booth at a radio station late at night talking to maybe nobody, talking to maybe empty air. Every once in a while, getting the phone call, talking to the caller. But when I listened to Coast to Coast and I listened to come of the, a couple of the other well-known radio late-night shows, it was a lot, a lot of call-ins and a lot of guests and a lot of commercials and a lot of bing, boom, bam, boom, boom, noises and sound effects and uh, all this rigmarole. And that's not what I remember being. I remember being this, like just this microphone and this voice and this person talking. And every once in a while, they would break for a commercial. Maybe they'd break for a song. And maybe maybe this only existed in movies. Maybe it never existed in real life. I don't know. But it was always something that I latched onto. It's not like I even listened to these things. But the idea of it, for some reason, maybe I didn't latch onto it. Maybe it latched onto me. Because it's been with me all these years. And when I started doing podcasting, it started surfacing. And it didn't start to surface in a visible way, in a way that I recognized. It was just like this longing for something. That when I started, when I put on these headphones, and after doing it long enough, when I started doing, actually, it was when I started doing solo stuff. I didn't think about it when I was doing stuff with Lamb because that was just a conversation. So for the first three or four, three years, two years, whatever it was, I didn't think about it. But then when he wasn't here anymore, and I was doing it by myself, there's nothing but the, the light buzz of the room that you guys won't ever hear because when I go into edit, I have a nice little plug-in that creates a little noise gate and cuts that off so you can't hear it. But for me, it's just a light buzz in the room and the sound of my voice. And something about the mood of that, it just took me to what maybe was an imaginary memory of late night radio. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. You know, like I said, I've been really excited to do this, to jump in, to do it, to create this thing that's been in my head. But what I've also been facing is like the fact that maybe what I'm remembering is not real. And what struck me five minutes before I, before I turned this on, five minutes that I was waiting for the heater to go off so that it wouldn't be in the background, it struck me the, you know, there's the, the, the Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. There's also many, many artists who have said the thing that you want, whether it's a book or the album or the movie, that you want to see, that nobody's made, that's your job to make it. So maybe this late night radio format of just the voice and the silence and whatever this is, 
this kind of talking or I'm just off the top of my head if it didn't exist. And it's my job to create it. And if, if I'm doing something that's been done before, then it makes me no different than any other human either. We're continually doing things that somebody else has already done. I just haven't done it. And that's one of the reasons that filling up this page with notes was something I didn't want to do because it loses this. You know, everything I'm talking about here, I don't have notes for this. You know what I have written for the part that we talked about? Notebook, late night radio. Those are my prompts. This is all stuff that I'm feeling, the stuff that I'm thinking, stuff that's on my mind. Not just now, but obviously for a very long time. Another reason that I was really nervous to do this is because this election, which we're not going to talk about, this election, it's been difficult for everybody. And it's been really hard to, I don't have a problem with talking about stuff that doesn't have to do with that, you know, because we all need distractions. I hate when something happens in the news and I turn on a podcast that will say that never has to do with politics and it's about politics and I turn on the next one and it's about politics and then it's like you can't escape this thing that maybe you just want to escape for an hour or two. I hate that. So I understand. I don't feel guilt about talking about something that's less important than what's going on in the world. Because I know that has a place. But it's so, this whole thing is taking over such a huge part of not even my active memory. Like my passive memory. It's like, you know that hum I mentioned? in the room this whole thing is like that hum you know like if i just if i stop and i'm quiet and listen for it i can hear it and i can focus on it and i can go there but if i'm doing other things i can forget it's there a little bit but there's still part of my brain even when i forget that's processing that it's there and so even though technically in some way we are talking about it i didn't want to talk about it I didn't want to talk about it because I feel like it's like it's like, politics is that one topic that like if you go there you never come back. You know you don't just talk about it once and never bring it up again because once you've opened that door you know you can open that door again. Actually, maybe it's not the only topic. Now that I I remember, there's a quote from Kurt Vonnegut about sex and why he never put sex in his books. And I'm not going to remember it exactly the way he said it, because I don't have that (laughs) machine-like memory. But essentially what he said is he didn't put sex in his books because he feels like once you introduce that into the book, nobody wants to hear about uh, the mining process in a town or what it's like to scuba dive. You know, once you introduce that tension of sexuality into a book, that's what people want to hear about. So the rest of the book is, you know, it's out the window. So much, so many of these these thoughts and these things that we hear, you know, these, this concept of late night radio, this idea from Kurt Vonnegut. So I just didn't, I didn't and I don't want to go there. I think the, the amount that I've touched on it right now is enough. I acknowledge the fact that it exists. 
And I'll tell you a funny story. Wanting this escape that I was talking about, wanting to not think about that. And I said, you know, I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to read a book. And I have this tendency to jump from book to book. I don't read just one book. I have a ton on the coffee table over there. Anybody that listens to semi-literate or listen to the semi-literate feed before I brought everything here has heard me mention this. I looked at the books on my shelf. I looked at the books on my coffee table. What do I want to read? What's a distraction? And there's this book, and I, I actually hesitate to call it a book because I think tome is a better word. It's a big book. It's like 1,200 pages. It's a big book. It's called Cultural Amnesia by Clive James. And essentially, it's an anthology. Uh, it's not an anthology. I mean, it's an, an anthology of essays. The whole premise of the book is essentially that there are things, there are people that Clive James believes that we have we've forgotten about or we don't think about enough that where our culture is, you know, getting amnesia, we're losing them. You know, whether it's an, an old vaudevillian comedian or a, a politician. So he, he has these essays about them, short little essays. I mean, there must be in this big book, there's probably close to maybe, I'd say, 100 people. And they're not all good people. This isn't like some nostalgic, like this person was really cool when they did this. The essays sometimes use these people as a starting place. And then he kind of goes somewhere else with it and then brings it back around. It's more about the significance of the person almost as a symbol. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I love it. I've owned it for probably five years. Still haven't even got halfway through it because it's not like one of those books that you power through. And like I said, I don't tend to power through books anyways. But this book in particular, it's like one that you want to, you just want to move with when you're in the, when you're in the place for it. Read about a couple people and let that just kind of like stick with you for a while. Don't read the next one and just forget the one from before. We have a tendency to do that sometimes. We have a tendency to just keep putting input in and just keep putting input and adding more input. And what happens is we don't spend enough time with each of the inputs that we are putting in. And they, you know, like the, the VCR tapes that they used to have that would record this uh, surveillance footage in convenience stores. What happens in every cop show from like the 80s and the 90s? They go to get the tape. It's been written over. It's on a cycle. Every 24 hours, it writes over the video from the day before. Our brains are kind of like that. You put stuff in too fast, and it just kind of writes over the other stuff. I've learned this the hard way twice. When, uh, God, if I can remember what it's called, when Netflix first started. When they first started, some of you might not remember this, the, pro, the, the business model was that they mail you, in the physical mail, a DVD of a movie. 
So you go into their website and you say, I want to see Charlie Chaplin's The Dictator, or I want to see When Harry Met Sally, or I want to see Die Hard. And they mail it to you. Comes in, they came in, they used to come in this little envelope. No case either. Just literally the disc. I don't know how these things survived, but it was literally just the disc inside a paper envelope. You take it out and you watch the damn movie and then you return it. And then you pick it, you know, you had this cue. That's where the idea of the cue originally came from. I mean, aside from the physical cue of people waiting in line, which is the British terminology for waiting in line, they're waiting in the queue. But the queue, the list, the thing that are in all these streaming apps, it came from Netflix. You go in, you say, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie. And the reason you had the queue was because they're physical discs. So like library books, sometimes they're checked out. So just because, you know, you want to see Ghostbusters again, doesn't mean that somebody else isn't already, you know, doesn't already have it at their house. You know, they buy, obviously, many, many versions of the DVDs, but it, it would happen, especially if it was a new movie. Good luck. It was like six months. So it would go down to the next thing in your queue. So you just create this queue, like, I want to see all these movies. You can get them to me whenever you can. Then they had this crazy thing, the thing that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> but it was this crazy idea of watching videos online. And you might not believe this, considering that it's like the the main, well, one of the two main modes that people watch entertainment now, either they have still have cable television or on-the-air television, or they stream. But when, it, when this first came out, it might have been called Netflix Stream. I don't remember. But when it first came out, Nobody thought it was anything of it. Like, man, eh, whatever. But I saw something there. I didn't see, maybe, I definitely didn't see it becoming what it is now. But what I saw was, hmm, I can, I can watch a movie that comes to me in the mail. But, you know, like, you have to mail it. And even though I live in San Jose, California, which is about 12 minutes from Netflix headquarters where the DVDs are coming from, it would still take a day or two. You know, actually it would take about, I think it was like a, it's either a two or three day process because, you know, you'd have to mail the DVD and then another one would have to come to you. So it's at least two days. I think three was average. So you're not watching a movie every day because you don't have a movie every day. So I saw this streaming thing and I was like, oh, that's cool. It can fill the gaps, you know, like I can watch the DVD, send it back and then stream a movie, stream a movie, stream a movie, new DVD comes. So continual stream. And the thing about it too, maybe I didn't mention this, but the streaming, it didn't have everything. I mean, even today, nothing has everything, but you can generally find almost anything. They only had license to stream a very small percentage of the DVDs. So if the DVDs, because there was no, oh God, I hope, I hope I'm not just reiterating all this for people who already know it or remember it. 
But let's go down memory lane here. Pretty sure they had almost everything on DVD. The licensing was different because it was like being blockbuster, you know, like being a movie rental place. But they had like maybe, maybe, maybe 10% that was available for streaming. I got into this. All of a sudden, I went from realizing like, oh, I can fill the days that the DVDs are coming with these streaming movies. I got to realize like, I can watch more than one movie. I can watch like, I can watch like a shitload of these movies. What if I try to watch all of them? Because, believe it or not, at that time, it was actually possible. There was a small enough number of movies and maybe even TV shows on their streaming platform that it was feasible that you could go through all of them. So I, I set myself that goal. And I got to a point where I was watching three, sometimes four movies a day. Just devouring movies. And because the content that these, the the movies that I was getting on Netflix were a lot of of foreign films. Because I guess they didn't think anybody gave a shit about them. Whoever licensed them was like, sure, you want to do what on the internet? Okay, whatever. All this, the normal, we'll use the air quotes there, normal, the popular, the average stuff, the American movies, all of that stuff, that was mostly on DVD. So I was watching these foreign films, and if you've watched foreign films, at least the ones that actually make it to us, they're deep. They're artful. And it doesn't mean that they don't make poppy crap like we do just we don't (laughs) we got enough of our own poppy crap we don't watch theirs but the good stuff for decades the good stuff since probably the at least the 50s the good stuff has been coming over here i'm watching you know kira kurosawa a bunch of actually a bunch of asian bunch of asian films but this stuff was heavy, and I was just devouring so much of it that I got to a point where someone had asked me, like, hey, have you seen any good movies lately? I say, oh, yeah, I've seen a ton. Really? Which ones? Uh, um, and I'm not exaggerated. I could not take all of this data that had been pumped in my head and break it out, parse it into movies. I couldn't pull together one or two titles because in my head it was just all mashed together because I had just been gorging myself. I made that mistake again a couple years later when I decided I was going to read 100 books in a year. And I ended up reading way more than that. But in order to do it, I actually wrote an article about this that uh, The Observer republished. It's called uh, Read... What's it called? (laughs) It's been been like five years. Uh, Read Less, Learn More. I believe that's what it was called. 
I'll put a note. I mean, a note. Put a link in the description if you want to check it out. But yeah, the basic idea of it is I read a bunch of books, and in order to do it, I was doing speed reading. I was listening to audiobooks at three times speed. And I was just ripping through so many books that I wasn't I wasn't learning anything. I wasn't retaining any of it. I wasn't pulling any of it into my actual long-term memory. And to this day, there are things, there, there are books that I read that year that I can look at the title and remember very little, very little about it. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, if you were in a car and you got to a town, this beautiful village, somebody let you out and said, I'll meet you on the other side of the village. And you walk through the village. You have this beautiful experience. Maybe you spend the day in the village. You have lunch at a cafe. And you walk through the rose garden. You have the experience. You remember this village. You've absorbed it. You've digested it. And that'd be very different than if the person in the car just went 80 miles an hour through the village without stopping. Have you been there? Technically. <laughs> what do you remember? Mm, there were some buildings, and some of them, I think, were orange. That's what it's like. You know, just rip through that stuff. But I picked up that cultural amnesia book, and I wanted to be distracted. I didn't want to think about things, and this is the book that I hadn't picked up in, like, two years. This book that I love. I hadn't picked up in two years because it just it hadn't been the right book. I'd been on other books. I said, you know, I'm just going to read one profile, one essay, whatever. And it's just I, this, this will be the magic that I need right now. I sat down and I had this nice little bookmark that had been in there holding the perfect place in the book for me for years. And I plopped it open. And oh, my God. Who is the article on? Joseph Goebbels, yeah, the minister of propaganda for the Nazi party. Now, like I said, James didn't just write these essays on people that he admired or that he liked. He wrote them about people that he felt made a significant cultural impact. And sometimes the cultural impact that we make is awful, terrible. And believe me, I... Part of me thought, like, hey, you know, like, I guess, you know, this will teach me something about politics. And I started thinking a lot about, um, I started thinking about Hannah Arendt and the subtitle of her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. The subtitle was A Report on the Banality of Evil. The Banality of Evil. And the whole book, the object of that book was to argue she was present for the trial of Eichmann. That's why it's Eichmann in Jerusalem. It's when he was, he was found in South America and he was deported. Or not deported, but he was taken to Jerusalem and put on trial. And she sat through the trial. She was, I think, working as a reporter. And what she observed was that, at least in the case of of Eichmann, that he wasn't this mastermind, this sinister, you know, twirling mustached villain, that he was something more banal, 
do something more commonplace, that he was like a bean counter, a bean counter of of evil. You know, that evil, the, one of the forms that evil could take is so banal to almost be uninteresting. And that's how almost everybody described this guy when he was on trial, that he was just super uninteresting. He had like no personality. He was just like a machine. And I thought about that. I thought about, I thought about that when I'm looking at this Joseph Goebbels. I haven't even started to read it. I'm looking at it on the page. And it made me, made me look at everything around me. Made me look at politics, this election, and all of these things. And think about how when we look back at history, when we look back at things like the Nazis, we we tend to look at them almost with this like mythical quality. I don't mean mythical. Sometimes we use mythical as a way to say that somebody is great or wonderful. I mean mythical as in like fantasy. You know, the story of myth that there's these grand epic proportions to it, but it also doesn't feel real. And sometimes history can feel that way, right? You know, you look back at you look back at World War II and like the lessons are so obvious because they've been hammered into us for decades. But at the time, it was messy and human and for a lot of people, normal. And I don't mean the extermination of six million people was normal. I mean, most of the world didn't know what was happening or didn't believe it. Didn't believe it was happening because it seemed crazy that something like that can happen. It's just this government and there, you know, for people outside of Germany, they're, they're crazy and they want to start war or whatever, but they're just, you know, it still felt normal especially for that generation. You know, like World War I wasn't that long before. The idea of, of countries fighting in wars to take over other countries was not that strange for them. But it made me think about things that, you know, like we, we see, th- some of us see things that are wrong. Somebody said something, and it seems common sense what they've said is bad. And other people look at it and they don't see it. They don't believe it. They've turned it off. And that, that feels normal. It's not good. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. It leads to many, many arguments between people who could normally like or love each other. But it's normal. And it made me think not about this election and about what's going on in the world right now, but what's going on in the world right now made me able to look back at Germany then and see it through the lens of living through this now. Because this is messed up. This is crazy. There are things going on that we didn't imagine could happen. But at the same time, because we're living through it, it feels, it doesn't feel mythic. You know, the way that if somebody read about this 50 years from now, maybe they could, maybe they'll see it through some like, well, that's just those 
those people back then, you know, like, like we didn't to them, we really don't exist, you know, any more than the, than the people of Germany exist to us. The people of Germany during World War II exist to us, their concept. And it answered a question for me that I've had for a long time and that maybe many of you have had for a long time. When I look back at World War II, I would always think, how did people, how did the people in Germany go along with this? You know, because it's obvious that a whole country can be just evil, that they all just wanted to do that. They all just wanted to kill six million people. But what the reality is, is that some of them, they bought the story, right? They bought the bullshit. They bought in. They signed up. Some of them didn't believe that, that was possible, that that could possibly happen. It's crazy. You're talking talking nonsense. Some people closed their eyes. Some people plugged their noses from the smell of the ovens. I didn't even expect to talk about that. The one note that I was going to give you guys on that article on Goebbels was the name of Joseph Goebbels' personal secretary. It's probably the worst name for a Nazi. Wilfred von Oven. Yeah, it's a fucked up name for a Nazi. Uh, oh, man. Getting heavy. Getting heavy. Long, too. Wow. I've really been doing this for 45 minutes. I don't know how long these are going to be. One of the other things that I've been doing is, distra- is distracting myself by watching something that makes me feel good. And I discovered this show. Well, I would discovered it. Somebody was talking about it, and I went and I turned it on. Is somebody feed Phil. It's a travel show. It's a travel show in the vein of Anthony Bourdain, except Phil is like nothing like Anthony Bourdain. You know, Anthony Bourdain was more intellectual and more macho and more more Bourdain. And Phil is more, uh, he's a little nerdier. And he's a little, he doesn't describe the food. He just, he makes faces and he just enjoys it. He's a little goofier and he's a little happier. So it's a, it's a very different show just because of that. But I've missed that format because... I don't know. When you guys watched Bourdain, I'm sure pretty much most of you watched him. He was that good. But when you watched him, the show was good because of him, but the show was also good because you wanted to go those places. You wanted to eat that food. And it sold us on an idea that maybe we've forgotten for a while. The idea that good people are everywhere. That idea that you can hear this or have this impression of this country. But the people, the people that are getting up every day and going to work, the people that are shopping in supermarkets, people that are picking their kids up from school, the people that are drinking coffee, the normal people like us, the good people. 
That's I think that's the magic of that show, and I've missed that. And right now, I really needed that. I really needed to remember that the goodness. And somebody feed Phil has been feeding me. <laughs> and I don't know which. I mean, like I pretty much the I think it's the first episode of Bangkok. Pretty much fell in love with Bangkok. There's been part of my brain that's been thinking like, maybe I want to. Do I want to live in Bangkok? I mean, I can get a crab omelet for like a dollar, and it looks like the most delicious thing in the world. Hmm, maybe. But one episode, in one of the episodes, I think it's like the fourth episode, he goes to Lisbon in Portugal. And uh, they're talking, they're, they're watching, I think it's near the end of the episode, they're watching these musicians. And they're talking about this idea. This idea that the Portuguese, it's, it's considered like the national feeling. You know, like they have like a national emotion. And it's called saudade. I might not be pronouncing that, depending on the dialect correctly. I know that some people, like the the Portuguese in Brazil, the Brazilians, they say saudade or saudade, I've heard. Nick Cave has talked about this, and he refers to it as saudade. But this emotion that they have, right? And there's they're listening to this music, and one of the people, one of the Portuguese people, this woman that Phil's having uh, drinks with and listening to the music. She tries to explain how this how this happened. You know, like the Portuguese are famous for being this seafaring people. That they 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 were their location made them, you know, not just the Portuguese people sailed from Portugal. I just like saying it like that. And I'm going to say it like that. Portugal sounds so boring. Portugal. But other countries, you know, Spain and all these, they, they would take their boats and then they would stop in Portugal and, you know, when they fill up on supplies or whatever before they went across the ocean, before they went exploring. So it's like this sea port for everyone. So this culture, this culture, uh, is this Portuguese culture is a fisherman and of the sea. And this woman, she explains, she says, and because of that, sometimes these people, you know, like the people were always leaving, they're always going off. And the people that left behind are watching them continually leave, knowing that they may never return, not just because they're going to explore the unknown and maybe never return from that, but because fishermen, especially before motors and GPS and all this stuff, fishermen sometimes just went out to pick, you know, to pick, to fish. They went out to fish. Sometimes they didn't return because the ocean's like that. It still happens today with all of our fancy technology. Remember when we lost an airplane in the ocean and we never found it? It still happens. So she says that the people that stayed got used to this feeling of longing. This feeling of continually missing someone. This feeling of continually saying goodbye. And the hope that they will return. And that that became Sadad. 
that's why it became their national emotion. It's such a beautiful, beautiful idea. Now, like I said, I had heard of this before because of Nick Cave, but I had heard him say saudage. So I'm hearing saudade and saudage. So I'm on the internet. I'm looking up, well, what is this? What, what is the difference between these two words? Is it a different culture, different language? What's going on here? Is somebody pronouncing it wrong? And in that process, I came across this quote from somebody named A.F.G. Bell. I don't know who this is. I tried to look up this person. Couldn't figure it out. At first, I thought maybe it was Alexander Graham Bell, but that F throws it off. That would just be A.G. Bell, right? But this A.F.G. Bell was in Portugal in 1912. And this is what he wrote. The famous Saudade of the Portuguese is a vague and constant desire for something that does not and probably cannot exist, for something other than the present, a turning towards the past or towards the future, not an act of discontent or poignant sadness, but an indolent, dreaming wistfulness. Isn't that beautiful? And in The Secret Life of a Love Song, this is what Nick Cave says. The love song is a sad song. It is the sound of sorrow itself. We all experience within us what the Portuguese call saudade, which translates as an inescapable sense of longing, an unnamed and enigmatic yearning of the soul. And it is this feeling that lives in the realms of the imagination and inspiration and is the breeding ground for the sad song, for the love song is the light of God deep down blasting through our wounds. Oh, that man can write. If you have never heard Nick Cave's Secret Life of the Love Song, just go into YouTube, find it. It is a speech that he gave. It's extraordinary. It's just, it's fascinating, not only to peer into the creative process and the way he views it, but just the way that he explains the love song and the the importance of sadness in a beautiful love song. And nobody remembers a happy love song. Songs, the songs that steal us, you know, like things like The Cure. Why is that, like, why does it make us feel that way? It's, it's, it's saudage or saudad, or the Spanish refer to something similar. They call it duende. So I have one. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going because I'm I've got one other thing that I I could break this off into something else, but I don't want to. I've been uh, been trying this thing, and I. I listened to an interview. I think it was Seth Godin and David Perel. And one of the things Seth Godin brings up is Isaac Asimov. Now, Isaac Asimov is someone I've always looked up to. He's this iconic science fiction author. You know, like iRobot. Um, he created iRobot. The movie, well, movie with Will Smith is kind of in some way, sort of, based off of Isaac Asimov, but not, not really. But uh, 
Bicentennial Man, the movie with Robin Williams. That's from an Isaac Asimov short story. Foundation is probably his most famous work, which I'm technically reading. I'm only like 20 pages into it. I just also found out that one of these streaming services, one of them somewhere, is making Foundation into a TV show. I don't remember which streaming service. But uh, interesting time for that to happen, considering I just picked up the book out of the blue. It's my my uncle. I grew up. My uncle was a science fiction fan the whole time I grew up, and Foundation was the first science fiction book he ever read. It's what made him a science fiction reader. So uh, many years back, he bought me the three books, the main three books of Foundation. It's a trilogy, and uh, I just never had picked it up. So I picked it up recently. But the concept that Godin brings up about Isaac Asimov was that Isaac Asimov would sit at his sit at his desk every day, sit at the typewriter every day from five thirty a.m. or six thirty a.m. I can't remember until noon for five and a half to six hours every day. And his theory on that was that you just have to sit there and just keep writing. Even if you don't have anything to write about, just keep writing. Because what will eventually happen is your brain will go, God, this sucks. If I'm going to have to sit here for six hours, no matter what, I might as well entertain myself. And because of that, your brain will engage. And that's how he wrote 400 books. Over 400 books. Nobody's even positive how many books Isaac Asimov wrote. If you, go to, if you go to Wikipedia and look up Isaac Asimov and go to the bibliography, you will see. You will see, like, there's like 40 books just in, like, A. He wrote a lot of books. That's how he did it. So I had this idea that I'm not going to do five, six hours. It's just crazy. You don't go from zero to that. But I said, what if I did an hour? What if I just sat for an hour every day and did that? And I did it once. I did it once. I'm not going to say that. And it was magically successful. I did it once, and it was successful. I got to almost 4,000 words from an hour of sitting there, and it wasn't gibberish as I was expecting. I think it was so effective, and I had so much stuff to work from what I had got from that that it overwhelmed me. So I have gone back to it. I need to. But the reason I bring it up, two things. First of all, I think the reason that it's one of the things that's difficult for us about doing something like that, about sitting and just typing, is getting over the sensation of there's nothing in my brain. Like this microphone, right? I was afraid when I sat down and I turned this on, like I don't have enough notes. There's nothing in my brain. But when you turn the engine on, suddenly things happen. Not every time. It's not magic. But you have to turn the engine on. You have to put yourself in the situation that's uncomfortable. Because the feeling of I don't have anything in my brain, it's really uncomfortable. And you know why it's uncomfortable? Because it feels a lot like the feeling of being made a fool, of looking stupid. And we all hate that feeling. 
So I sat and I did it that one day and so much came out. And I'm just going to share at the end of this, I'm going to share something from that. This is, I gave it the bold title of Thoughts on Reality. So it was 75 degrees out. I had just come back from walking the dog and my mother is sitting in her living room watching television. I take off my hat. I say, God, it is hot outside, covered, covered in sweat. And she turns around and she looks at me and she says, Are you crazy? I'm freezing. Which one of those is reality? The answer is neither of them are reality. They're both perceptions of reality. I had just walked four miles in the direct sun and I was wearing a face mask. So I was flush and I was sweaty. But she had been sitting indoors in the shade, relaxing on a recliner, watching TV. She had a blanket at her feet. Her blood wasn't pumping like mine was. She hadn't been in the sun like I was. This is how we perceive reality. We perceive reality through our own personal experience. But we confuse that with being reality. See, both of our perceptions of that 75 degrees, both of those perceptions are true. Neither of us was wrong or lying. I wasn't wrong that I was sweaty and hot. I wasn't lying about it. I was sweaty and I was hot. And she wasn't lying about being cold. She was. But our perceptions, they don't mean much. All our perceptions do is say, here's one way you could look at it. But reality, the actual reality of the situation is unaltered by our perceptions. Reality is that it's, it was 75 degrees out. Direct light and exercise can make 75 degrees hot and sweaty. Shade and inactivity and relaxation can make 75 degrees cold. But 75 degrees remains 75 degrees. That is reality. And as human beings, we have a tendency to weigh our own personal experiences, our own personal perceptions, too heavily. And we confuse that with truth. If you eat this and you get sick, you assume that every time you eat it from then on, you will get sick. And you assume that anybody else that eats it will get sick. But you're basing all of that off of one experience. And as I'm sure you can tell, that has a lot to do with politics. But I'm going to let you figure that out for yourself. <laughs> so this is this is our our manuscript, our rough draft of our manuscript. This is our our pilot episode in a way, isn't it? This is I don't know. I had fun doing this. I hope you have, you enjoyed listening to it. I don't know what's happening. I'm I'm leaning into the experience of this. I'm leaning in to this being, whatever it needs to be. I'm only going to judge how these things work in one way. If I turn on this microphone and I keep talking like I'm on the air, 
and I can leave dead space on the air, and I feel like I'm talking, and I feel like I'm making points, and I feel like I'm saying something interesting, then I'm going to assume. I'm going to take my perception, and I'm going to assume the reality is a-okay. But as I've said on all of these separate podcasts, when they were all separate, there's also a very important experience here that's not part of what I'm doing. It's not part of me sitting in this room alone in front of this microphone talking for an hour. And that's you. There's the experience of you listening to it. And there are your perceptions. And there's the importance of those in all of this. What I'm trying to say is, I want to hear, I want you guys to apply your critical thinking. I want to hear your perceptions. I'm not looking for arguments. I'm not looking for, I'm looking for constructive input. Let's build something. Take whatever sloppy things I say on here. If one of them strikes you, or one of them sparks something that you know more about, I want you to share that with me because it's, 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 it's in some degree, it's fun to sit in a room and talk to a microphone and assume that somebody out there is going to hear it. But like the late night radio host, sometimes you need call-ins. So go over to Twitter and find at the real chat hall. Talk to me. Let's, Build something off of each other. Because if somebody says something useful to me there, it's going to make it into my thought process. It's going to make it into this. And this can just keep continuing to grow. You know, this is, I'm not, not worried about Apple charts and download numbers and all that. I'm worried about doing something that's interesting. Doing something that's valuable. That's the whole reason I took all the shows and put them all here. Because they all had very, they all captured things about me that were valuable. But to be able to put them all in one place, I knew I could create something unique. And if you want to support the show, you can do it. I have two ways you can do it now. You can either just buy me a coffee. It's a one-time thing. Or you can, if you feel more safe with Patreon or you want to do an ongoing thing, have Patreon now. And maybe this whole building a community thing, maybe eventually we'll get to a point where, you know, we need something more that we can use Patreon for, you know, like the the Discord integration or the uh, Reddit integration. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm saying the wrong words or starting the wrong words. Clear sign, clear sign that and the clicky sound in my mouth. And we're at the end here. I hope you guys enjoy this. Give me some feedback. Hope you guys are all doing well. And uh, feed your brains. Mm-hmm.